Hello and welcome to episode 13 of All Rings Considered, a read through the Lord of the Rings. We are now on book two of the Fellowship of the Ring, and we are on chapter one, Many Meetings. In this chapter, Frodo awakens in Rivendell, and he awakens to none other than Gandalf the Grey at his bedside, tending to Frodo as he's recovering from his wounds. Frodo has several conversations with Gandalf and, and Sam, and Merry and Pippin show up. Frodo has brunch with some of the uh, higher beings in Rivendell. He meets Elrond, and Arwen is there. And then, who other than Bilbo Baggins uh, makes his appearance and recites some poetry. And it closes with Bil- uh, Bilbo and Frodo having a conversation to themselves, and we are getting prepared for uh, a big council that is supposed to be held in the following day. Yeah, that about wraps it up. Well, one thing I, I want to talk about right away is that this is a new book in The Lord of the Rings. And so just to recap this for the listeners, The Lord of the Rings is actually divided into six books. Uh, they weren't published that way. It was published as three volumes with two books per volume. But the book is really the better division, right? So there's nothing really linking books one and two as like somehow needing to stand apart from books three and four, right? It's really book one stands on something on its own. Book two stands on its own. Book three, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we're in a new book. And so I think that gives us opportunity to do two things. One, what's our final takeaway from book one? Now that we're out of it, now that we're done, and we've done this chapter by chapter slow read, what's our impression of book one? Two, what does this chapter say about book two? Does it does it say anything about book two? Or do we get any book two impression uh, from this chapter? What do you think, Pip? Um, I had something similar written down here, all capital letters, what is happening in this chapter, but meaning more or less the same thing. Mm-hmm. What's actually being started here what's this story what can we take from you know something it's following you know the climax so what's happening now yeah well first i want to say my final opinion and takeaway of book one one thing we should do maybe at the very end of our whole podcast is we should rank the six books Mm, okay which ones we like best I think book one is going to be pretty high up there for me yeah. when all said and done. I, I really enjoyed book one. I always enjoyed it in the past because I really enjoyed the sort of hiking and walking bits a great deal. In our current read through, I really, the big new takeaway for me from book one was that, was that edge of the world feeling we've been talking about the past few chapters, a few episodes, the sort of in the wilderness, away from civilization. And that you're sort of just skirting the edge of like what Middle Earth really is. You're, you're out in you're out in the boondocks here, right? And it's got a cool atmosphere to it as a result. And I think it also sets up the rest of the book really well. You spend a lot of time here in the middle of nowhere, book one, to set up where we're going to go, books two, three, four, five, six, where we're going to get more into like civilization, into the heart of Middle Earth, mm. really where the people live, <laughs> people and, and elves do, right? Where, where everybody lives. And I think book two is going to set that up a bit as well because chapter one, book two, all of a sudden expands Middle-earth in a very real way. 
And book one, Middle Earth is big in its abstract sense. It's all about Frodo talking about, oh, Bilbo's stories, Bilbo's maps. He looked at maps a lot. He could see these faint echoes of Bilbo's story, like the trolls in last chapter. Oh, I, I should add, too, he, he met elves in book one, right? But they were sort of passing through. Mm-hmm. Or it's one elf, like Glorfindel, last chapter, one elf showing up. Well, he's in Rivendell now. And there's, I mean, he meets all these big people with connections to the world. The world expands all of a sudden, right? It's not just the edge and the wild and the wilderness, and it's not in the abstract. Like, these people are here. He's meeting Elrond. He sees Arwen, which is supposedly pretty... It's a big experience for somebody, right? Yeah. Yeah, no joke. He talks with the dwarf Glowin, right? Uh, One of the dwarves from Bilbo's company in The Hobbit. Glowin tells him all about what's happening in Erebor and Dale, as well as all across the lands traveled from The Hobbit. Aragorn's revealed as more than just being Strider, right? And he's not just a ranger. And that was kind of hinted at. And, you know, if you were paying any attention, you should have figured it out by now. But right. <laughs> it's now explicitly spelled out for you. He is a he is one of the Numenorians, one of the last Numenorians left. So the world's just, it's all of a sudden the world's big. We are seeing the rest of the world directly. Yeah, I'd have to definitely agree with something you said about the first book being really kind of on the edges of, of Middle Earth. Something I thought was that it really gives the impression of what Middle Earth is like without telling you what's going to happen. Because most of the characters and the things we face in in book one, you know, um, the Black Riders uh, accepted, is they, they we don't see them again. We don't see um, Farmer Maggot really in the story. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, we don't see Farmer Maggot um, in the rest of the story. We don't really see Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. But we're still getting an idea of what Middle Earth is like just through experiencing it without having to say, hey, like this is, here's the yeah. plot. But yeah, um, I think what's, you know, this transition into this new story, Frodo, kind of getting into the bigger part of the world, what's important, I think, to note about that is he had to die, you know, symbolically. Right. More or less at the end of that book, it's pretty reasonable to think about that as Frodo or the Frodo that used to be as dying and you know, this chapter more or less is is kind of just exploring heaven a little. It's kind of the world outside of the world. It's, you know, an unassailable, you know, unreachable place where all these timeless lords are, you know, talking about stories in a place that, yeah. uh, you know, Bilbo says, time doesn't seem to pass here. It just is. Yeah, so it's... it's uh, Frodo's transition into getting into this mm. this next life of his. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's something I, we should look at. They really pay attention to how each book ends. You know, book one, two, three, four, five, six, how each book ends and see if we can detect any patterns. He definitely, I mean, just off recall, I know he ends each one with a pretty big, I don't know, cliffhanger almost. Hmm. Uh, Tolkien's pretty good at that. Uh, when we get to the end of book four, that's one of my favorite endings to a chapter I've ever read. Ending of book four, I'm excited to get their episode god included it's gonna be episode <laughs> 50 something oh my gosh let's hope we get there we will yeah he, he ends these books really well i know book two we're gonna get a good ending too with uh the breaking of the fellowship so spoiler alert but yeah we'll get a good well gandalf says in the beginning i mean it's foreshadowing here he says his time is coming mm. Mm. that's a good catch yeah uh, the one thing i uh i really like about 
this is not exactly about the chapter, but we see it a little bit here. This is not. Um, this is more style than than the uh, semantics here. But something I really like about uh, Tolkien's writings, he uses this these words like terrible and doom when yeah. relating to characters that are the quote good characters unquote. Right. And uh, I think he really shows a depth of of emotion and representation of these these good characters almost feels very old testament you know very you know uh oh yeah you know so the terrifying you know um good guy or these you know the elves that are just so so intertwined with both like mirthfulness it's probably not both mirth (laughs) and um uh and sadness Mm -hmm. and and i think that it kind of shows in this chapter where you see sort of both of those um yeah Yeah. well a lot of it's, it's sort of deliberately archaic too giving it that Old Testament feel, that sort of King James Bible Old Testament kind of feel. Um, but, but, you know, Doom, how he uses it is often, it's just uh, fate or the end or something like this. It doesn't have to be a bad end or a bad fate. It's just fate. And that's deliberate, right? I mean, he's he's just trying to make it sound a little more mythic and legendary, but it gives it a nice style to it. I like it uh, quite a bit. One of those things, though, where I can definitely see why people wouldn't care for that. Really? Right. right. Like, yeah, I could say, I'm not saying, I mean, I, I, oh, love obviously, it, but I'm yeah. saying I can see why some people are like, I don't want to read something like this. Yeah. I guess maybe there are people like that. I don't care to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> so, one thing, though, Tolkien does a great job of is Tolkien's aware he's writing like that. Hmm. And I love when he puts in these self-aware moments in the book to remind everybody that he knows he's that this is all really in the end. This is a book, and this is kind of he knows what he's doing. And you have this wonderful moment where Pippin gets up. He calls Frodo the Lord of the Ring. Yeah. And Gandalf freaks out at him for a little bit, right? He says, "Gandalf goes hush," and he says, "The Lord of the Ring is not Frodo, but the master of the Dark Tower of Mordor." whose power is again stretching out over the world. We are sitting in a fortress outside. It is getting dark. And Pippin immediately responds, Gandalf has been saying many cheerful things like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, good moment. I mean, Tolkien knows he, he can, he's writing in this uh, sort of elevated way, elevated and archaic way, and he's not above having some fun with it. Well, you know, and it's kind of, it's four hobbits in Rivendell, right? Which is, it's kind of yeah. the... It's where legend meets ordinary, and how that the, those two things interact, uh, which is I think one of the big pieces of the Lord of the Rings, just as a big work that makes it you know a proper myth, which is that mm. you're or even maybe kind of transcends the way we like typical myths, because usually myths are we're the ones we remember are things that are, you know kind of survive the test of time so they tend not to deal too much with the ordinary but i think something that i really appreciate about the lord of the rings is is this hobbits and elrond right so it's this yeah. how do how do you yourself relate to this eternal you know sort of uh, narrative or uh let's see there's there's another you were mentioning we were talking about transitions one thing yeah. i just wanted to mention real quick on transitions. I noticed this just before we started recording. I was thinking, oh, so here's the line. When he had dressed, Frodo found that while he slept, the ring had been hung about his neck on a new chain, light but strong. And 
I actually think this is really uh, a great line because it's nobody there's no no reference to anyone doing that for him nobody right. knows who actually did that and in a real sense no one did right it was that frodo now has this very strong tie to the ring that is just the way it is now i don't know do you want to talk about i well i i was gonna say real quick i think it's interesting you don't know who did that and to me it raises an interesting question of that that's to be almost i don't know if it's a plot hole but whoever did that there's almost a sto- an untold story there, right? right? Whoever put that ring on that chain had to go through the usual temptation cycle that we haven't talked about too much on the podcast yet, but it's definitely here in the book of anytime someone's sort of presented off for the ring, they have to go through this cycle of considering it and then rejecting it. You saw that with Gandalf chapter two or chapter one, one of the two. Um, Aragorn, when he meets up with them in The Prancing Pony, has to say, I can have it now. But I won't. Right. Did that regular thing. There's some untold story here of somebody doing that with this putting the ring on the chain, and we're not I really told who it is. I, I love that though. I don't I don't want to know. I like I like imagining in my head like who it might have been. Was it Elrond? Like did he have to think about this? Gorfindel? Gandalf again, maybe? Did they get Sam know. the really cool. you know the uh Well we'll get Sam's we'll get Sam's temptation come book four, so stay tuned for that. But uh yeah, I I like that a little bit. Uh, another thing, though, I want to say about Chapter 2 in the expansion of the world. I'm sorry, Book 2, Chapter 1. We, we know, just from having read this book before, that Book 2 is actually still not going to take us into the heart of Middle-earth yet. For all that talk I just said of Book 1 was wilderness and edge of the world, and we're, we're going to get into civilization, the world is getting bigger. We're still not there yet. Elrond, uh, sorry, Rivendell is still a small place surrounded by mostly wilderness still we're going to get to moria it's a it's gone it's abandoned right uh we get to lorian but it's also still an outpost and then we end it back in the wilderness again it's really not till we get to books three four five six that we really get to the heart of things but the difference is that book two is still expanding it, it feels like the world's getting bigger and like we are getting closer so moria is abandoned but it's still a remnant of this great once incredible civilization, right? Same with Rivendell and Lorien. I mean, these are remnants of something big and great that we didn't really see too much of in book one. Or if we did, it was still too it was too distant, right? Like the Barrows and Weathertop are remnants of something great, but it's like it's barely a sign of it, right? Right. It's just not really there. So we go from total edge of the world and total wilderness, book one. Book two is going to bring us into like these pockets of civilization or remnants of great civilization and then three four five six we're actually going to get into the civilizations themselves and we'll, we'll finally make it right when we get to hmm. the heart of middle earth which is nice interesting too to yeah absolutely i love it as 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 a progression and i was about to say this too that it's it's a cool structure to the book that the ring is found on the you know in the edges of the world it has to be brought back into the world hmm. uh into civilization in some way to be destroyed so uh, something to think about and something kind of neat yeah i like that very much it's you know you can look at it as the ring as being this you know temptation for abuse of power and or you know it is the abuse of power itself or the power to do those things and i like you know what you just said is having to bring it out from the forgotten you know completely forgotten back through you know the uh 
dealings of people from recent past, you know, the great lessons from, you know, culture and history back into the present of actual people, actual living yeah. agents in the world. And that is where you deal with it and kind of going from uh, mm-hmm. one place to the other is, I, I like that very much. Yeah. I mean, the ring itself is sort of the sins of our fathers, right? That's something that comes up so much in Lord of the Rings is how do we deal with it? And that actually leads me into my favorite line in this chapter is when Frodo's reunited with Bilbo and Bilbo asks to see the ring and he uh, has that terrible look on his face for that brief moment. It's like he's he looks like a monster for a moment. It's just he's not Bilbo anymore as he, as he wants it. And Bilbo says to him, after that, he says, I understand now, put it away. I am sorry. Sorry you have come in for this burden. Sorry about everything. Don't adventures ever have an end? I suppose not. Someone else always has to carry on the story. Great theme there. Powerful theme. The sins of our fathers are something we do have to reckon with. And the ring itself just is that. I mean, it's it's from this. I think this might get explained next chapter, right? We don't quite yet know. I think not even Gandalf told us in chapter two, but it does represent the mistakes that, that elves made back at, way back before Lord of the Rings is set. And now they have to, it has to be reckoned with. It has to be dealt with. Even the mistakes men made, right? We're going to see how Isildur did not destroy it when he should have. And so I also like, too, that quote because it plays into the running theme you and I have talked about so much mm. of the Lord of the Rings building on The Hobbit and spinning it off, right? Or subverting it, maybe. Subverting The Hobbit. So we've, we've talked about it. it's like the anti-fairy tale. It's... It's not a there and back again treasure quest. But yeah, and that's something that just, you know, and I love The Hobbit because those those adventures are also real. Yeah. But this is so much more real because it's it's the question of life itself. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. I mean, we've used the metaphor here on this podcast of The Hobbit as childhood and The Lord of the Rings as adulthood. Nobody's denying that childhood is not real. It's not that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But as Bilbo says here, the adventures don't have an end. They, someone else has to continue that story, or the adventure essentially will continue. And here's the natural progression of that adventure. Whatever happy ending you got from your childhood adventure, like there's a there's a price to pay here. Life goes on, and it's not always going to be good. Let's see. Uh, my favorite line from this, um, a little bit less somber. Um, I like how <laughs> Gandalf's beard was described. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> uh, I actually really do Just like, like this. Just like you liked Butterbur's face. <laughs> His fat face. But actually, like, uh, it's a description. Frodo is sitting at the table of all the great lords and of you know men and elves, and, and Gandalf is there, and they sit him on a several cushions so he has you know he can reach the table but i actually really like this description of gandalf it's um gandalf was shorter in stature than the other two but his long white hair his sweeping silver beard and his broad shoulders made him look like some wise king of ancient legend in his aged face under great snowy brows his dark eyes set or were set like coals that could leap suddenly into fire and i like that i don't know it's just great snowy brows you know these coals that could you know leap into fire i think that's just a great description of gandalf i think we're we're getting close to game time yeah we need to wrap this up let's uh let's wrap it up um next episode we will have a surprise yes next episode a special surprise although now that we're we better be careful saying this because we're going to jinx it but we should have a special surprise if everything comes through We'll have a special surprise next episode to celebrate 
the longest chapter in the Lord of the Rings, the Council of Elrond. So stay tuned. We will see you next week. <laughs>